This morning I'm going to share a Kirsch family secret. In our living room, we have a comfy red chair. It looks great, especially during the holidays, with a red, white, and green blanket thrown over the back. But that blanket is covering up a problem. <laughs> Remove it, and you can see that our chair is badly in need of repair or replacement. That red chair is a good illustration of the kind of cover-up most of us engage in far too often. We present perfection to the people around us, but beneath the surface, there's sin. We sometimes even convince ourselves that it's not there, but the imperfections are there. Even if no one else can see them, God knows. The selfishness, the hatred, the lust, the envy, the lies, greed, cheating, and so much more evil that lives in our hearts and too often creeps into our actions, doesn't go away just because others can't see it right now. For some reason, we think we can avoid judgment despite the fact that there's no evidence that we can indefinitely keep our shortcomings out of view and plenty of reasons to believe otherwise. Still, we try in vain to cover it all up. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden after eating the forbidden fruit. They hid from God, even though they must have known he'd be able to find them. And they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, even though the very desire to do so was evidence of their disobedience. And they tried to pass blame. Adam implied that it was God's fault. If God had not created the woman, she wouldn't have given the fruit to him. And Eve blamed the serpent, who, as the old joke goes, didn't have a leg to stand on. But God responded to both the sin which had been committed and the blame Adam was attempting to use to reflect his guilt. God made it clear that he had a plan. In Genesis 3.15, he said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, God was going to use a woman, not a man, to fix things. Neither Adam nor Eve probably understood this at the time. But God's plan would become more evident as the history of the world unfolded. And as we read through the Old Testament, we can find clues that God left, pointing the way to the answer he would provide, the solution to the sin problem that began so long ago. This morning, we're going to review a whole series of clues, and I'll mark each one with a spyglass just for fun. So the first clue in Genesis 3.15 is that the solution to the sin problem will come from a woman, not a man. The second of these clues can be found in God's call to Abraham, which is recorded in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. 
This tells us that God's answer to the sin problem would come through the descendants of Abraham. That's the second clue. The next clue is seen during the first Passover, when God was preparing to destroy all the firstborn in Egypt. In Exodus 12, God instructed Moses, tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will fall on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, it would be a blood sacrifice that covers sin. And to emphasize that point, in the months that followed, God instituted a system of sacrifices. Of course, none of these offerings stopped people from sinning. Indeed, they had to be repeated again and again, generation after generation. But they pointed to the fact that blood was required. Hebrews 9, 21 and 22 summarizes the worship Moses instituted like this. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the third clue is a dark one. Someone will have to die. Now the next clue is seen in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, where God promises David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The fourth clue, then, is that God had a special plan for the descendants of David. Now, you would think that would give the kings that followed David great confidence. All they needed to do was obey God, and their future was secure. But, of course, that's not what happened. And in Isaiah 7, when two of his northern neighbors began planning an attack, we find David's descendant, King Ahaz, having trouble believing the promise. In Isaiah 7, 2, we read, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So God sent Isaiah to reassure Ahaz, promising that the feared invasion would not happen and offering a miraculous sign as proof. The prophet essentially said, ask God for anything and he will do it to prove that what I am saying is true. Now, while you or I might think we would jump at the chance to get something we wanted or see God do something beyond the normal bounds of nature, Ahaz refused. I'm not sure what his problem was. Perhaps he was too proud. Maybe he was just having a bad day. Whatever the reason, King Ahaz refused to suggest a sign. So Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil 
and choose the good. The land of the two kings you dread will be deserted. Now Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. The prophet was predicting for the first time that we have documented historical evidence that God himself would be taking on flesh and living on earth. And thus it was that the Jewish people began to anticipate a day when they would be able to see, touch, listen to, and talk with the one and only almighty God who created the universe and holds it all together. So the fifth clue is that God himself was going to be born and live with us. In the prophecies that followed Isaiah 7, there were other clues. But I want to skip to the last one that was given just before the voice of God went silent for several hundred years. In Malachi 4, 5, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That was the last clue. God was about... God gave about his plan to deal with the sin was that a messenger like Elijah would be sent in advance to prepare the way for him to come down to earth. There may have been no prophets after Elijah, but everyone remembered what Malachi had said. And so it was that when John the Baptist started preaching in the wilderness, Jews from all walks of life paid attention. I can imagine a family traveling between Galilee and Jerusalem to participate in one of the temple festivals, or a businessman trying to get his goods to market encountering John at the Jordan River. He would have seemed eccentric, oddly dressed, and a bit annoying as he preached repentance and called people to baptism, saying, in essence, prepare to meet God. He's coming very soon. He'll be here any day now. Today, you or I might hurry past such a preacher, assuming he was a fanatic or mentally ill. We might even suggest that family and friends go a different way to avoid him. But the Jews of that day knew about the prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi. They were longing for God to fulfill those promises because they were struggling under the burden of Roman occupation. So it wasn't long before the banks of the Jordan River were full of people who'd come to hear John and its waters populated by those waiting to be baptized. Then one day John announced, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After that, John's popularity began to decline, but Jesus moved to call people throughout Palestine to listen to what John had said and to put their faith in him. Among his targets were the Jewish religious leaders who ran the temple in Jerusalem. And as we've already seen a couple of weeks ago in the first half of John 5, Jesus intentionally challenged their interpretation of the law of Moses just to get their attention. Think about it. If he had healed the lame man on a Tuesday or Thursday, no one would have paid much attention to the fact that the guy was carrying a bed. He would have blended in with all the vendors carrying their goods to market and shoppers headed home with things they just purchased. But on the Sabbath, he was probably the only person on the street carrying anything. And that definitely got a reaction from people who thought it was their job to make sure everyone obeyed God, which is exactly what Jesus wanted. And so it was that Jesus began the debate in which he claimed equality with God and promised eternal life to those who believe. Now as we continue through John 5, we come to the passage in which Jesus calls witnesses.
to verify his claims. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Now Jesus had, in effect, created a courtroom and seated you and I, listening to his words many years later as members of the jury. Now he begins to call witnesses. You've sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that I... Not that the testimony I received is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a while to rejoice in his light. So the first witness Jesus called was John the Baptist. He reminded his listeners of what John had said about him, pointing out that John was widely recognized as an important element in the string of clues God had left about his plan for dealing with the sin and guilt that began in the Garden of Eden. But John was not his strongest witness, so he called another. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Of course, these works included the healing of the lame man performed that day, as well as other healings and miracles we find recorded in the Gospels. But they also include the fact that Jesus made his message available to everyone. In Matthew 11, when John the Baptist was having second thoughts about his endorsement, he sent messengers to Jesus asking, Are you the one who was to come, or should we look for another? And we see Jesus' response in Matthew 11, and five. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Have you ever thought about that last phrase, the poor have the good news preached to them? Why is that significant? Because the Jewish religious leaders had turned holiness into something the poor could not afford. It took time to do all the rituals their definitions of the law prescribed. Time poor people didn't have because they were working day and night to grow enough food to keep from starving after paying their taxes. And it took a lot of money to buy acceptable sacrifices at the exorbitant prices charged in the temple market, which, of course, was the only place you could possibly get an animal that would pass priestly inspection. Can you imagine how it would have felt for a poor person in the first century to hear Jesus say that God loved the world for the very first time? To think that you might be able to stand in God's presence and be forgiven, even though you could not possibly afford to make an offering to atone for your sins. But Jesus' works extend far beyond healing the sick, raising the dead, and offering a relationship with God to rich and poor alike in the first century. In Matthew 16, 28, he told Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. In the years immediately following his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus' message spread throughout the Roman Empire in spite of persecution. 
Ordinary people were so moved by the opportunity to be free from guilt and shame that many of them chose to die rather than recant their faith in him. Others were so filled with love that they rescued helpless infants who had been thrown out to die at birth because they were deformed or female. And as these girls grew into women who loved Jesus like their adoptive parents, they became valuable to Roman men who were having trouble finding wives among the male-dominated society and thereby gained the opportunity to train Roman children to love Jesus. We know that this was a problem to the Roman elite because they passed laws against rescuing abandoned infants, which the followers of Jesus largely ignored. Finally, the Romans responded by adopting Christianity as official state religion and managed to use religious practices to keep the poor ignorant and subservient for nearly a thousand years. From time to time, people such as John Wycliffe and John Huss discovered the truth in God's word, but their voices were largely drowned out by persecution from church and state. Then the invention of the printing press allowed Martin Luther to spread the word far and wide that the just will live by faith. And as the message of Jesus spread, it led to freedom from sin, political oppression, and superstition for millions, which in turn facilitated science and technology. It's no exaggeration to say that without Jesus, many of us would still be serfs, scratching out a living on a small plot of land with primitive tools, fearing unseen spirits, and haunted by superstitious fears. I believe that when we read John 5.36, we should think not only of what Jesus did during the 33 years in a human body on this planet, but all that has followed from that. Yes, his works in Palestine in the first century were proof that he was everything he claimed to be, but there is so much more that he has continued to do, and the evidence of his work continues to pile up to the present day. John 20, 30 and 31 say, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the second witness is the works of Jesus, but not just what he did in the first century. By reverencing the works the Father gave Jesus to do, the Gospel of John becomes a living document, growing year by year to include the things Jesus is doing today, freeing people from sin and guilt, providing hope in the face of loss, gaining victory over sin and death. John 5.36 is a perfect example of what Hebrews 4.12 means when it says that the word of God is living and active. Every day with every heart that is changed, every act of love, every relationship that is healed, the meaning of John 5.36 becomes richer. History is not changing the truth of God's word, but it is making it richer and more meaningful. This should be compelling evidence for anyone that Jesus is God equal with the Father, and the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But there is more. The next witness Jesus calls is God himself. But Jesus calls the Father to do more than testify on his behalf. He references God the Father in this argument to call into question the very competence of the religious leaders he's addressing. In John 5, 37 and 38, he says... 
And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. Jesus is warning the religious leaders that if they refuse to believe he is the Son of God, they will never be able to recognize the Father or hear his voice, because the Father looks exactly like the Son. In fact, the Father is exactly like Jesus. He talks like Jesus. He acts like Jesus. And if you don't recognize that, you won't be able to recognize the Father even when he is standing in front of you speaking your native language. Jesus continues in verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is talking to people who have spent their entire professional careers discussing and debating the writings handed down to them by Moses and the prophets, trying to find a way to wipe away the stain that began in the Garden of Eden. But they failed to recognize that nothing they could ever do would be enough to cover guilt or that God, through his Son, was offering them forgiveness. And what was preventing them from seeing the truth that was standing right in front of them? I believe it was their desire to look better than everyone else. Jesus warned them about this pride in verses 41 and 42. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. The Jewish religious leaders talked about obeying God all the time. But obedience is so much more. They only wanted to obey God for what they could get out of it. They'd managed to twist things so that the business of worshiping God gave them prestige, made them rich, and offered the promise of even greater prestige and wealth when God fulfilled their visions of what the Messiah would be. How do we know? What basis is there for being so judgmental? We know they did not love God because they weren't the slightest bit interested in meeting his son. Jesus points this out in verses 43 and 44. He said, I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Most anyone who runs into the son or daughter of an old friend is happy to see them, even if they haven't met them before. These people claim to love God, but weren't the slightest bit interested in meeting his son. Now, Jesus calls his final witness, Moses. In John 5, 45 to 47, we read, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? When did Moses write about Jesus? In Genesis 3, when he recalled God's promise to use the woman Adam wanted to blame God for, to bring forth a seed that would strike the serpent's head. In Genesis 12, when he recorded God's promise that through Abraham, all the people of the world would be blessed. 
In Exodus, when he gave instructions for the first Passover. In Leviticus, when he recorded the details of the various sacrifices. In Numbers, when he told about the time that the Israelites were saved from poisonous snakes by looking at the bronze snake on the pole. And in Deuteronomy, when he explained how to recognize a true prophet. All this and so much more the Jewish religious leaders had heard about since childhood, but they would not believe that God might become a poor man or sacrifice because they did not recognize how hopeless their situation was. They thought that if they kept all the rules God gave Moses, God would honor them. They failed to recognize that God only gave the law an attempt to show them how bad they really were. As the old King James Bible says in Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Today each of us has a choice. We can recognize that we are sinners, unable to do anything or remove sin, except the sacrifice Jesus made for the cross on our behalf. And be grateful to God who loved us and gave himself for us. Or we can try in vain to make ourselves look good by comparing ourselves to others, deceiving ourselves into thinking that somehow their sins are worse than ours. Some in the first century tried to combine faith in Jesus with religious practices they'd grown up with. But the Apostle Paul wrote them this warning in Colossians 2. 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all the things that are perished as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In the Middle Ages, people tried to reduce their time in purgatory by visiting relics purporting to be the bones of various saints, pieces of the cross, the burning bush, etc., or by purchasing so-called indulgences from the Roman Catholic Church. Today, some take pride in church attendance, scripture reading, personal evangelism, while others focus on political activism, abstinence from alcohol, or other habits which may be laudable, but are often driven more by a desire to look good than by sincere love for God. But Jesus is calling us to the only salvation possible. As Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So this morning, I'm asking you to see yourself in our red chair. To remove the blanket of good works and face the reality of sin. To accept the testimony of John the Baptist. The proof of Jesus' works which continue to the present day. The word of God, the Father, and the clues left in the writings of Moses. To pray confidently on the basis of the forgiveness Jesus provided by dying for us. To love God because he first loved us to share that love with others he died to redeem and to demonstrate our faith by eating a wafer which represents his body 
and drinking some juice, which represents his blood. And as you do, take a moment to examine yourself. What is it that is standing between you and those around you? Where is it that you are not right with God? Please take this quiet moment to take stock. Confess before God places where you still fall short. Visualize the blood of Jesus washing that guilt away. And go from this place trusting in Jesus' blood, not your own efforts. Thank mm-hmm. you.